My guest is Dominic Grieve. Dominic Grieve is a former Attorney General of England and Wales, former MP and a barrister. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Dominic. Thank you. It's a great pleasure to be with you. I thought we'd start, Dominic, by talking about the Conservative Party and, and what's happened to it when it comes to when it comes to Europe, the party that took uh, the United Kingdom into Europe under Ted Heath's premiership, the party that championed the single market and, and, and pushed very much for enlargement of the EU. It doesn't seem like the party we see today. So what did, what did, how do you describe and how do you explain the evolution of the party along this path? I'm afraid the party has failed uh, in what I would have seen as one of its primary missions in the last 30 years, uh, which was to uh, improve the United Kingdom's influence uh, and its economic well-being by participation in Europe. Of course, some of the problems that came to the fore with the Brexit referendum have been around within the Conservative Party for a long time. Got to remember, there was a significant element within the Conservative Party that was against joining the EC in the 1970s, uh, but they were very much uh, marginalised and they were a minority. But what we've seen in the last 15 years is the growth of a, of a measure of anti-European populism, and it certainly grew, I think, quite considerably in the post-2008 period after the financial crisis. And whilst some of the elements doing this were outside the party, you can see Mr. Farage uh, and his uh, UK Independence Party as one manifestation of it, it was also quite present within the Conservative Party itself. I was aware of this when I was an MP, when I looked at the membership of my own constituency association and their views. They tended to be Eurosceptic. Uh, that's to say that they saw the European Union as too bureaucratic and holding Europe and the United Kingdom back by over-regulation. The difficulty is that it became a sort of default position. And many Conservative MPs, including, I blame myself on this, who were supportive of our participation in the EU, even if we were at times critical about some aspects of the way the EU was operating, just let this mood continue and didn't really challenge it openly. And you can see this very clearly with the way David Cameron responded to these pressures. So when finally David Cameron decided to try to lance the boil by holding a referendum, he was in a very poor position to do this. I, I remember very well that on the day he announced the referendum, he came to address the backbench committee of the Conservative Party, the 1922 committee, and he said his view was quite clear. He'd done a renegotiation. He thought he'd obtained some things which were desirable. And he wanted us to uh, stay in. And he was going to campaign resolutely to stay in. And you could sense the mood in the room of the number of MPs who were not entirely persuaded. And I remember his saying, we've got to get real guys, were his, were his words. Uh, but he was in a very poor position to say that. Because for the previous four years, and indeed when in opposition, He'd taken us out of the EPP and he'd constantly criticised the way in which the EU operated. Was he optimistic nonetheless that he could win the, the referendum? Was that the baseline for him? Uh, yes, he was optimistic that he could win the referendum. Uh, and I think he remained optimistic he could do that when, firstly, when he announced he was going to hold it, a matter on which he really didn't consult at all in 2013. Uh, and secondly, I think he was optimistic that he could do it uh, in March uh, 2016. 
But I think he soon realized he was facing really considerable difficulties. He'd expected, I don't know, 60, 70 MPs to campaign against uh, remaining uh, and for leave. And he firstly lost Michael Gove and then he, Boris Johnson did his classic of, of writing two speeches, one saying he was backing leave and the other remain and then pumping for leave. And that, I think, made David Cameron realise the writing was on the wall. Uh, and he went off, if you remember, to the Canary Islands. He said he wanted time to think. And I think, <laughs> I'm sure this was because he appreciated that, in fact, he had taken a high risk and it now looked as if it might go very badly. So as we got into the referendum period in 2016, um, I think he was a very anxious man. And of course, he had the added problems. He didn't want to wreck the Conservative Party. So we fought that referendum with, with kid gloves on, really, for the first six weeks, whereas those who were backing leave went at it all guns blazing. And it was only really towards the middle of May 2016 that he changed tactics. Because, you see, he was so worried about the Conservative Party being rent asunder afterwards, even if he won. When it comes to the external sort of threat, if you like, to the Conservative Party, you mentioned the UK Independence Party and its now current manifestation as the Reform Party, but also the internal threats, you want to call them, or internal uh, challenges, uh, as maybe as personified by the European Research Group. Maybe explain to maybe to a, a non-expert audience, a lot of our listeners are not from the UK, why, why the Conservative Party leadership, whoever's in number 10, seems to be so nervous and so afraid of these, of these relatively small groups? With UKIP and Farage, the anxiety was, as you may recall, that in 2012-13, they started winning by-elections, or at least there was one by-election they won. But Cameron was worried that although they wouldn't necessarily win seats, uh, it was going to be sufficient at the 2015 election to tip the vote so that we would lose seats to Labour. So that was one anxiety. The ERG were just a constant nuisance. And the problem, going back to what I was saying earlier, is that if anything, their numbers were growing. We had attracted in more Eurosceptic MPs into the party in the period 2005 and 2001, 2005, 2005, 2010. I think yeah. David Cameron worried about two things. What, firstly, it was that the uh, UKIP would either win one or two seats, but more relevantly, in the next general election after the 2010 election, would win enough votes to lose Conservative seats to Labour. So he was anxious about that. And he wanted to um, try to show that he had responded to the concerns that were being expressed by sections of the electorate about the EU, renegotiate, and then make sure that he could defeat UKIP. Uh, indeed, that was a priority even later with Theresa May and, and with Boris Johnson. So it's, it's a bit of a continuum. The second thing is he had a significant number of Conservative MPs, more than his majority in Parliament. Remember, we were a coalition government yeah. uh, who were more and more determined to and willing to destabilise the Conservative Party over Europe. And by offering them the referendum, it kept them quiet. And he thought he could defeat them. Uh, and at that point, they would have to just accept that we were going to stay in. We had the second referendum, he, he would have won it. Uh, he would have made conciliatory noises to them and hoped to carry on. But he was perfectly aware that they commanded a some support in Conservative Party associations, 
and therefore he felt he couldn't disregard them. Mm. Now, in this, I think he was mistaken. I'm convinced that if he never made the Bloomberg speech in 2013, he would still have won in 2015. And at that point, he would have had even more authority over the ERG. And seeing the demographic changes taking place within the United Kingdom, I think in the longer term, the threat from the Eurosceptics or the Europhobes, I think we should call them rather than Eurosceptics, um, was going to decline. And if he just held on, uh, he would have found that the problem would have progressively gone away, particularly as the economy was picking up by 2016. And he'd shown himself to be a rather effective prime minister leading a good administration. And now fast forward to today, the inside the, uh, the Conservative Party, the European Research Group, uh, there are various reports that its, its membership is, is not as, as great as it was at its sort of so-called heyday. So why do we keep talking about the, the power and the influence of the ERG? I think we continue to talk about it because they are a vociferous group, even though I agree with you, I think their power is waning uh, and is going to continue to wane the longer the, the post-Brexit process unfolds. Uh, but they remain the guardians of the purity of Brexit. And bear in mind that they were an intensely disruptive force in 2017, 2018, 2019, because they were constantly blocking and preventing Theresa May from coming to any sort of reasonable accommodation with the EU in the post-Brexit period. So they really flexed their muscles. And uh, that caused her... Um, a lot of trouble and indeed undid her policies completely and eventually led to her ruin. Uh, and they put Boris Johnson into Downing Street. But of course, the Johnson era has been a disaster. And as a consequence, the ERG are definitely undermined by what's happened. And now for people like yourself, Dominic, a moderate pro-European you are, uh, you are politically homeless, are you? you? You no longer have the party whip. You stood at the last general election three years ago this month as an independent. Uh, what do, where do people like you t go? Do you start a new party? Do you join another existing party? Or do you just turn your back on active politics altogether? I fear, I think, that most of us are probably turning our back on active politics. Uh, we don't have anywhere to go. It, it's a curious situation, clearly. Uh, Labour is moving back towards the centre, but I am a Conservative. I, I don't really ever see myself as a member of the Labour Party, and I find myself in agreement with a lot of my Conservative colleagues mm. on many things, but not on others. Uh, the Liberal Democrats are flatlining. They can win by-elections, and we've seen that, and those by-elections are expressions of massive discontent with the present Conservative government. Uh, the seat adjoining my own, uh, Cheshireman Amersham, uh, went in 2021. And it was a remarkable result when you consider it was one of the safest conservative seats in the country, and the same with Tiverton and Honiton. And this was a massive anti-Johnson uh, vote and real anger with, with the government for its conduct of, or misconduct of its policies. But although they can do that, they're at about 9% in the national opinion polls. And I think the Liberals are, I have to say, missing the obvious. They have always marketed themselves as being a party of a slightly radical bent on the mm. centre-left. Yeah. Whereas actually, the electorate that might turn to them is on the centre-right. 
uh, and they seem incapable of repositioning themselves to do that, uh, partly because their own rank and file, the, the sort of people who stick with them through thick and thin, um, tend to regard conservatives as their opponents, if not their enemies. So on that basis, it's hard to see how a centre ground political party is going to emerge. It obviously emerged in the old days with the, the SDP um, back in the 1980s, because there was an element of moderate Labour and the Liberal Democrats that came together and jolly nearly turned themselves into the second party in terms of electoral support. I just don't see that happening. So where do we go? Well, we, we congregate in groups. There's an organization called the Conservative European Forum, right. um, which is open not only to Conservative Party members, but to exiles like me, <laughs> uh, currently run by David Liddington. Uh, and we, we meet, we talk, we discuss papers, we put forward suggestions, we try to continue to maintain links with Brussels and with the EPP uh, and with sister parties uh, that we consider important. We try to influence the way the Conservative Party develops. But I don't want to exaggerate uh, right. the impact of that at the moment. Uh, and I am not a member of any political party at present. Right. Well, let's talk then about the, 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 call it the current administration as we speak. Rishi Sunak is still prime minister, I think. Um, there's some talk, maybe premature, but tell me what you think, that this uh, that Rishi Sunak as prime minister is rather more pragmatic, should we call it, when it comes to dealing with the, our European partners, even though he voted to leave, of course, uh, 2016, and that there are some maybe vaguely encouraging signs of a slightly more grown-up, constructive uh, relationship with, uh, with the EU. Do you agree with that analysis? Yes, I do. I think Sunak is uh, essentially a pragmatist. I do worry a little bit as to why he backed leave in 2016. It remains to me utterly mystifying. Uh, and the question on, which on, I on think... On economic grounds, I mean, since he's... On economic the grounds, they, what, what is it? Because I do think I understand what motivated... There were two principal motivations for people to back leave in 2016. Um, certainly at the Conservative end of the spectrum. One was um, this fortress Britain, this anxiety about immigration, this sense that Britain's identity was sliding away and a sort of populist nationalism uh, that, that made them desire separation. The other was this view of economics that the UK out of the uh, EU would turn itself into what's been called the Singapore of the Northwest Atlant Northeast Atlantic and would be... Um, a dynamic global economy freed of the shackles of the EU. Now, it may be that that's what motivated Rishi Sunak, because I certainly don't think he belongs to the first group, although there were doubtless quite a few people in his constituency who did. But the fact is, in the years that have followed, none of this has been realised for either group. So I would love to know what Rishi really thinks about the future for the United Kingdom and where its economic well-being is, because we are facing a significant crisis in that, along with the rest of Europe, we're coming out of COVID, there's the Ukraine war, and we have lots of economic problems. But it is obvious that the level of those problems is significantly greater than our principal European partners, and dare I say it, rivals. And, and I don't know how Rishi... What his response to this really is. And this, this then, so we agree that the, the Prime Minister is, is quite pragmatic. Do you think that pragmatism will extend to a, some kind of resolution of the, the vexatious issue of the Northern Ireland Protocol? 
I very much hope so. And I think he probably wants it. He must know how uniquely damaging the UK's position is on the protocol. Of course, we should never have signed the protocol. My view, <laughs> we should. Yes. It, it was obvious in, in 2019 that the protocol was going to create precisely the things to which complaint is now being made, uh, and we're saddled with it. And and I can understand that under pressure, particularly in Northern Ireland, where it is a real issue, but also here, he should want it changed. But to threaten to rip up an international treaty that was only signed two years ago. Um, is not satisfactory, and he can't want to do this because he will be told by a number of sensible people in government how how reputationally uh, bad it will be for us. So I think he does want the agreement, and I just very much hope that there is some flexibility on both sides to achieve it. Right. And do you think there are other areas of cooperation, uh, irrespective of what happens on the Northern Ireland Protocol, where the UK can have a more constructive relationship with the EU? Or do you think that the, the, the government still thinks it has to keep an eye uh, on the domestic political scene and, and not be seen as being too, uh, too cooperative, basically? I think it's going to be very hard for this government to do a huge amount, clearly. Our decision in 2019 that we weren't going to participate in, in the European Union security cooperation uh, sphere. Mm. Um, I think that's probably gone with the Ukraine already. I, yes. I laughed rather when Liz Truss went off to a meeting of EU ministers and claimed they were the, uh, uh, she claimed that it was a meeting of EU, uh, uh, of European ministers from NATO countries, which it plainly <laughs> wasn't. It was an EU Defence Security Summit. She couldn't bring herself to admit it, but that we are back in, and I, I, I think that we're likely. I'd like to see that um, regularised. So that's the first. Thing. Um, we can do that. There's no um, Court of Justice of the European Union element to that at all. Yeah. Um, then the question is: Can we improve our trade relationship? Well, we obviously can. Uh, and if I were a UK Prime Minister, I'd start by saying, let's go back to phytosanitary alignment, because that would remove, I don't know if else, remove 90%, 95% of the problems with the Northern Ireland Protocol. Um, the trouble, though, is that means admitting that a key plank of Brexit has been abandoned. And I just don't think this is going to happen under Rishi Sunak in the next two years. And indeed, if you listen to Keir Starmer, He's not promising that either, although he's leaving his options open. He is repeating this mantra. Mm -hmm. uh, we are not renegotiating Brexit. We want to make Brexit work for the United Kingdom. How he, Keir Starmer thinks that he's going to do that in a way that is different from what Rishi Sunak is trying to achieve for the UK, uh, I have no idea. Right. And you hear a lot here in Brussels uh, as much as in, in the UK, of course, in London, that the, the big issue also, the, the underlying issue is the, the lack of trust, the absence of trust between the two sides. And whatever happens, a, lot, a number of trust building exercises or initiatives have to be undertaken. Uh, first of all, do you agree with that? And, and secondly, do you have any advice you give to the government how it could build on these trust building measures? There is a trust issue, although I would rather hope that with the disappearance of Johnson, it will things will improve considerably because Johnson is not trusted. And you had to speak yes. to politicians or European uh, diplomats from European countries. 
to see the extent to which they really loathed him. And I'm not altogether surprised. Uh, and Liz Truss was not around for long enough for them to form a view, although her politics were so disastrous um, that they must have just looked on jaw-droppingly at what was happening. Now, with Sunak, I think that they have the capacity to build a relationship. I detect Macron is really seeking to do it. And I think the Germans will too, and other European partners. So I think that there is the capacity to greatly improve uh, the relationship. And what I would say to UK ministers, show yourselves to be reliable international partners again. Because the quite apart from the economic hit the UK has taken, the impression around the world is that the UK has become a rather chaotic, ungovernable place where politicians stand up on a daily basis to trash their own institutions and slightly foul mouth their key partners. When, when this trust described Macron as, you know, friend or foe, the jury is out. I mean, this being a country with whom we share some of our nuclear secrets, yeah. I thought this was a pretty extraordinary <laughs> point to have reached in the course of our, of our politics. You don't behave like that. There's something puerile about it. So the first thing I would say is let's get adult um, about this. Let's be grown up. Let's uh, come across from what I think the United Kingdom is, which is still, despite everything, a stable democracy with some very firm foundations. If we can do that, then our reputation will rebuild and then people will want to talk to us and we will be able to start solving some of our problems. Well, then a final question then to you, Dominic. The time has gone very quickly. We're touching there now on, on Britain's role in the world, Britain's position in the world. Uh, obviously, the, the UK is very keen to remind everybody that's a leading player in NATO, permanent member of the UN Security Council, a key member of the G7, they like to think, uh, and have views about maybe they could build on, on the G7 and make it some kind of economic NATO. But in things like this new, this new creation, uh, initiative of uh, President Macron, the European political community, do you think that's something that, that the UK uh, should take seriously that it has potential uh, and a vehicle through which the UK could demonstrate its back, as you say, playing a, a grown-up role in world affairs? Yes, I do. I think that all those things are useful. And if I were in government, I would be trying to use those tools and to pursue them. And I think Macron's, as Macron's suggestion, this European sort of circle of cooperation, that looks to me to be interesting and inviting. But of course, at the end of the day, the judgment is about the UK as a stable country, which is able to pay its way in the world, because without it, you start progressively to lose influence. I saw this in the 1970s. I'm old enough. What got me into <laughs> politics was this sense of frustration about you know, the UK going down the plug hole. Strikes, mm. uh, poor GDP performance, poor growth uh, relative to our principal partners or competitors, uh, just a sense of, of demoralization and decline. And, and uh, at the moment, after actually what for most of my political life has been a period where I think people were viewing the UK more positively, root of Margaret Thatcher's great changes, taking us into the single market, it was pursued by John Major, despite blips in the early 90s, and indeed by Tony Blair and Gordon Brown. And you could see the end product of it in Cameron government in 2010 to 2015. Mm. But since 2016, you sense a tipping point. Yes. That we are, you know, we're seeing sliding 
slowly away from some of the medium power advantages that we could project. And we've got to stop that. And the question is, how do we do it outside of the European Union? And I don't think an answer to that question has yet been suggested. Right. Well, on that note, Dominic Greve, thank you very much for your time. Thank you.